The most fundamental belief of Christianity is salvation through Christ alone. Is it true? Can we support that belief? We're going to talk about that today and more on BibleStudyPodcast.org starting now. Hello and welcome everybody to BibleStudyPodcast.org. This is Toby. Today is Wednesday, June the 27th. And of course, we're in the final installment of our Worldview series. Today's Wednesday, and Wednesdays we talk about cultural issues or apologetics. And right now we're at the end of our study on worldviews. And we've been looking at and examining the Christian worldview and examining whether or not it's true or not. And uh, so today is actually going to be our last installment of this series. So hopefully you've been blessed by what you've heard. Hopefully you heard last week's message. It was on Thursday instead of Wednesday. In case you regularly listen on Wednesdays, but unfortunately didn't know that last week I was out of town. I was on vacation, got back uh, Wednesday evening, and so I um, I put up last week's podcast on Thursday, and we talked about the Bible and who wrote it, where it came from, who decided what was going to be in it, etc. And uh, so hopefully you were able to catch that. And today we're going to be talking about uh, the exclusivity of Christianity, whether or not we can really say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. After all, that is uh, very, very important. That's b- the basic belief of Christianity, actually. So before we get started, let me just get a couple announcements out of the way. First of all, Matt is going to be starting his new series this week, but we here in the in the Charlotte area of North Carolina, we got rained on so hard uh, for about two to two nights uh, earlier on in the week, and Matt actually, I guess, experienced some flooding in his house. So, uh, so his podcast was postponed. It'll be tomorrow, Thursday, instead of uh, instead of yesterday, which was which was Tuesday. So, be looking for that. He's going to start a brand new series, and I'm sure it's something that uh, that he's excited about, and I hope that you will be too. So, let's go ahead and get started with a quick word of prayer today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are and for loving us and for calling us your own, Lord. We thank you that you have brought us through this series and that you've helped us to understand our worldview uh, more clearly, Lord. And so we ask that, that today you would give us clarity of mind so that we can understand our faith completely and that you would enable us to defend our faith and explain our faith more clearly. Thank you so much, Lord, for this opportunity. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you were to look at Christianity and ask yourself, what is the central belief of Christianity? Or what does Christianity either stand or fall on? What would it be? What would be your answer to that? Would it be the issue of which translation of the Bible we use? You know, there are a lot of people out there who say that, you know, you have to read the King James or you have to read, you know, this version or that version. Is that the central issue of Christianity? Would it be whether or not we have traditional hymns or contemporary music for our worship? You know, churches have been split over that very issue. Churches have broken up over that very issue. Is that the central issue of Christianity? You know, hopefully you understand that I'm not making light of these two questions. 
All I'm trying to do here is show that there is a more critical issue than these things that have broken up churches. And uh, that's that's very sad that, that those two issues have actually, you know, divided churches the way that they have. But I would hope that most of you answered that salvation through Christ alone is the single belief. It's the one belief of Christianity that is more important than any other belief. But as you're probably aware, this belief of ours has come under attack. It's always under attack. Whether it's academic circles or whether it's the media, people are attacking this fundamental doctrine of Christianity, you know, all over the place, left and right. Why? Because as Larry King once said, they think that we as Christians are pompous for claiming that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. And this is something that a lot of Christians struggle with. After all, there are a lot of people throughout history and across the world who have never even heard of Jesus. They have no idea who he even is. So if it's true that salvation is through Christ alone, then these people are going to be separated from God for all of eternity just because they've never heard of Jesus. And this has troubled deeply troubled a lot of Christians throughout history, and rightfully so. After all, we need to come up with a way to reconcile our belief that God is both purely righteous and ultimately fair with the fact that these people are going to be accountable for whether or not they believed in Jesus. Now, there are a few different ways that people have responded to the Christian doctrine of salvation through Christ alone. I call that Christian exclusivity. That's what it's commonly referred to. And let me say that I believe in this doctrine with everything I've got. But first, I want to talk about some wrong answers that people have given to these attacks. How would you respond to someone who says that God can't be supremely righteous and fair if he allows people to go to hell when they've never heard of Jesus? How would you answer that? If this is a question you've never been asked, I can almost guarantee you that you eventually will be asked that question. And as Christians, as faithful Christians who want to defend our faith, we need to have an answer because literally millions, if not billions of souls are at stake here. So we're starting with some wrong answers to that question. Let me start with with explaining some ways that people have explained it, I think, inadequately. One way that people have responded to this objection is to say that, yes, Jesus is the only way to get to heaven, but his sacrifice was sufficient to cover anyone and everyone. So everyone is going to heaven as a result of Jesus's sacrifice on the cross, and belief or faith in him isn't really necessary. This is called inclusivism. It means everybody's going to be included because of the work of Jesus on the cross. Basically, what they claim is that, yes, Christianity is indeed the one true religion, but it doesn't matter if somebody is a Christian or not. Everybody is going to heaven. That's one way that people have answered that question. And what I'm going to do here, I'm going to quote a couple of authors who wrote a book, uh, Clark Pinnock and Brow. They they wrote uh, they wrote a book on this matter, and so I'm going to be um, I'm basically going to be using them as representative of the inclusivist position. So, in accordance with their view of salvation, the inclusivist view of salvation, Pinnock and Brow wrote that quote: "Since Christ died for all the ungodly, God's acceptance of everybody might be thought to be assured. There are no sinners for whom Christ did not atone." How could there be a final judgment like hell, which could not serve a redemptive purpose? Unquote. Now, 
This position, however, lies in direct contrast to Paul, the Apostle Paul's teaching, that those who are not in Christ on the day of judgment, quote, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And that's from Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. While the atonement of Christ, while the work that he did on the cross is sufficient for all, it is only those who freely choose to believe in Christ that are saved from condemnation. And we can find that in John 3.18 as well. If we are honest with the Bible, we have to recognize that there is absolutely no redemptive purpose to hell. There's no way that people go to hell and they're somehow redeemed nor is there any indication of such a purpose found anywhere in Scripture. If such a purpose did exist, Christ would have had to have taught that the rich man, and uh, in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, Jesus would have had to have taught that the rich man would be granted the relief he sought from the confines of hell, and that the wheat and the tares uh, in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30, would eventually be reunited, and that salvation is eternal, but punishment for sin is not. And of course, you find a contrast between the two, uh, or a parallel between the two, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. Pinnock and Brow, however, they don't deny the existence of of hell. Instead, they hold that it is only temporary rather than eternal. It's just a means of convincing those who have rejected God to repent and accept his grace. It's like, I'm going to twist your arm until you agree to do such and such. In other words, uh, by their own words, quote, hell exists for sinners who, though forgiven, steadfastly reject their acceptance by God. We are not suggesting that it is easy for a person to go to hell, only that it can be done. You've got to be kidding. It's not easy for a person to go to hell. All you have to do is reject Christ, according to the Bible. But one thing I have to note here is that they didn't uh, mention scripture at all. They didn't cite or reference any scripture at all uh, for their position pertaining to hell. And further, the concept of hell being difficult to enter into is uh, is diametrically opposed to Christ's teaching in Matthew seven fourteen that the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. But what this verse is acknowledging is that few would find and accept Jesus as being the true way, the way that leads to eternal life, life in heaven in, in contrast to destruction in hell. Let's also not miss the fact that in explaining the fact that some people make a conscious decision to choose hell over God's grace, Pinnock and Brow have said that there comes a point when God, who has done everything to bring sinners back into fellowship, gives up trying. This is what they say. God accepts defeat at this point and says, in effect, quote, their disposition and direction appear to be fixed. They are a lost cause, and God gives up hope on them. But again, however, there is absolutely no support in Scripture for this type of thinking. Logically, to assert that God simply, you know, quote-unquote, gives up is to imply that he once tried and ceased trying at a given point. But honestly, friends, don't believe this for a single second, because this implies, first of all, that God changes. He tried at one point, and then he didn't try. So that's a change. Second of all, this implies that God is less than perfect in his foreknowledge, which would mean that God is less than perfect in that sense. Yet a God that is both omniscient and all-powerful is incapable of making mistakes. In he's incapable of, of 
foreseeing anything incorrectly. Scripture is clear in teaching that God will not forsake those who have freely chosen him, and because of his foreknowledge, he knows who will and who will not accept and believe in him. So there won't come a point where he looks at them and says, you know, it looks like they're a lost cause and I'm just going to stop trying to to reach them now. I'm going to stop trying to convince them. That's not how God works. That doesn't fit with his perfect nature. Further, these guys have asserted that, quote, God's mercy is greater than his justice. And this is absolutely ridiculous. It has absolutely zero support scripturally. Now, we've talked before about how God can't have parts because he is infinite in his nature. No single part of God outweighs any or every other part of God because God doesn't have parts. God is infinite, and what is infinite can't have parts because logically you can't add or subtract from something that's infinite. So God's mercy isn't greater than his justice, nor is it less than his justice. God is both merciful and just at the same time and equally. None of his attributes outweigh the other attributes. Now, there are a lot of ideals within the position of inclusivism, which lie in direct contrast to the plan of salvation that has been revealed in Scripture. Is it ideal that all will be saved? No question about it. You know, God told us that's his will. Peter told us that that's God's will, that all men would be saved. But would that really be fair? If he forced people to be saved, if he brought everybody in regardless of their will, no, because God gives everybody a free choice in this life. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews 9.27 that we die once and then we face judgment. So if someone doesn't make the decision to accept Christ in this life, God isn't going to force his love on somebody. He can't. That's, That's a contradiction. You can't force your love. It's a violation of somebody else's free will. Nobody thinks it's right for anybody else to force their love on other people. And that's why stalking is a crime. That's what a stalker tries to do. They try to force their love on somebody. So the premises of inclusivism totally fail. They've totally fallen apart. They don't line up with scripture whatsoever. Yes, it would be ideal if everybody could be saved, but no, it's not realistic. And we have to conclude that this is not an adequate way to respond to the question of why we believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Now, a second answer that Christians will sometimes give is that all religions lead to God, and thus anyone who practices any religion will receive salvation. This belief is called pluralism. Now, for example, one theologian, he wrote that religions themselves are God's intended instruments for leading people to salvation. Now, there are a number, there are a ton of unscriptural implications contained within this uh, this type of ideology. And let's go ahead and take a look at some of those. First of all, implicit in this statement is that God created more than one religion as a means of finding him. While most Christians will agree that God can use his enemies as a means to the greater good, we find that in scripture, you know, that he'll use his enemies for his for his purposes. To assert that God foreordained contradictory religious systems is absolutely ridiculous, and it's illogical. If one religion takes a look at an object and says it's a circle, and another religion says it's a square, it is logically impossible to say that they are both right, because there's no such thing as a square circle, right? It has to be one or the other. If this statement is true, that uh, that God created more than one religion as a means of finding him, then either Christ was mistaken or 
or he was lying when he claimed to be the only way to the Father. That's in uh, John fourteen six. And of course, we don't believe that Jesus was mistaken or lying. We believe that he was telling the truth, that he is the only way to the Father. Second is that God cannot will, he can't desire for anything less than that which is perfect. He can't set his eyes on sin. He can't look at our iniquity. That doesn't mean he doesn't see it. It's a figure of speech. It, it means that he can't uh, take joy in watching us, actually. If Christianity is true, then for God to have created other religions leading to him would have been God willing or desiring or creating less than the greatest good. However, this is not within the righteous or perfectly just nature of God. Because if he would have done this, then God would have shown a degree of favoritism toward those to whom God revealed the greatest degree of truth. If Christianity is the ultimate degree of truth, and let's say uh, Buddhism is a lesser form of truth, but they're both from God, then he has shown us favoritism by giving us the highest degree of truth. And it is illogical to conclude that a God who is righteous in every way would be capable of eliciting such favoritism toward one culture, but not to another. Now, a second argument presented by pluralists is that the truth found in Christianity is also found in other world religions. As an example, uh, there's a guy named John Hick, a theologian named John Hick. He gives Jesus's command to love our enemies and notes that the same moral principle is found in nearly every other religion as well. Now, there's no denying that moral goodness is found in other religious systems. The fault of this argument, the, the thing that's wrong with this type of argument, though, is that holding a belief in God or in an ultimate reality will result in its adherence, the people following that religion, doing what is morally good. But... Belief in any God or any religious system isn't necessary for doing what's morally good. You don't have to be a religious person. You don't have to have a religion in order to do what's good. Because, in essence, this would be saying that an atheist is incapable of doing anything morally good if following any religious system uh, leads us to do something that's morally good. Well, an atheist doesn't follow any religious system. They don't believe in a God, but they do morally good things. So this doesn't line up either. That doesn't work. John Hick wrote that, quote, the basic moral teaching of the religions remains the same. It constitutes the universal ideal, unquote. And now this is clearly just baloney. This is totally untrue as evidenced by the fact that the Quran, for example, contains 123 verses regarding fighting and killing for the cause of Allah, the Islamic God, and that's with a small g. For example, in addition to the commandment that Muslims must make war on the infidels, now, infidels are anyone outside of the Islamic faith, so in addition to the commandment that Muslims have to wage war against the infidels who live around them, Muslims are also instructed in Surah 490 to, quote, seize the infidels and put them to death wherever you find them. In Surah 812, it says, cut off the infidels' heads and cut off the tips of their fingers. You know, these commands are clearly totally different and in direct contrast. They're totally opposite of the teachings of Christ. So the question we have to ask then is, can the commands of the Bible 
for example, to turn the other cheek or to love your enemies as you love yourself, can those be equally true with these commands from the Quran? And of course they can't be. That's ridiculous because they are totally opposite and opposites can't both be true. If the Bible says that to turn the other cheek is the greatest good and the Quran says to seize the infidels and, and cut off their heads and cut off their fingertips, that that's the greatest good, can those both be true? No, because one action is totally opposite of the other. So there are a lot of other problems with pluralism as well. And let's just, let's cover those very quickly here. First, Peter taught that there is no other name by which anyone is saved in Acts 4.12. If personal revelation is sufficient for salvation, then Jesus's work on the cross is entirely unnecessary. After all, God had a plan of salvation, which was exclusive to the era prior to Christ. It was different after Christ died. Jesus had been foretold starting in the garden back in the book of Genesis. God had a plan to save humanity through faith and belief in Jesus. And the writings of the New Testament support our belief and our faith that Jesus is the necessary means to salvation. We can find that in uh, John 3.16 through 18, for example, or Romans 10.9. Second of all, if it is possible, if it's even possible that people can currently be saved through other religions, then the Great Commission from the end of Matthew is totally unnecessary. Why do we have to go throughout the earth? Why do we have to be salt? Why do we have to be light? Why do we have to make disciples of all nations? Not only were nearly all of the disciples brutally murdered for proclaiming the gospel, but countless others have followed in their footsteps and they've been martyred as well. So if it's true that people can be saved through other religions, then those people died for nothing because the people that they were going to give the gospel to were going to be saved through whatever religion they were practicing anyway. Third, as Christians, we don't deny that there may be some common truth found in other world religions, such as the Golden Rule. You can find the Golden Rule in a lot of different world religions. But to copy certain aspects of Christianity without embracing the central and essential truth of it is not sufficient. The essential truth, the central truth of Christianity is that Jesus is the only way to heaven. To say that, you know, because these other religions have some truth in them that you can find in Christianity, to say that that would lead them to salvation is as valid as a $100 bill that's been printed in a photocopying machine. Now, it may share many of the same characteristics with the true $100 bill, but the fact is it's merely a copy of what's required to conduct monetary transactions in the United States. And so if you have only a copy of that $100 bill, what you have is really worthless. It's worth nothing. One final point here is that it is impossible for God to reveal anything less than the complete and ultimate truth that his means to salvation are found in none other than Christ. God is by no means limited or finite in how he, how he reaches people. God wants all people to be saved. That's what Peter told us. And for the true seeker, God can reveal Christ as the necessary means of salvation through a lot of different ways. He can reveal Christ through visions, or by sending an angel, or by sending a missionary, or by providing them with a Bible. God is capable of performing the miraculous. While we're not, God doesn't need us to save other people. And he has several means at his disposal for revealing Christ as the necessary means for receiving salvation. People can have dreams in which the truth about Christ is revealed to them by God. And this, friends, 
This is how we should answer the objection that we've been faced with. The Bible is clear that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus, his only son, so that whoever believes in Jesus won't be condemned on the day of judgment, but will live with God forever. They'll have eternal life. And God is totally righteous. And God is totally just because he sees the hearts of everyone and he knows who is truly seeking him and who is not. To those who truly seek him, he will reveal the truth and save them. And that, friends, that is why we believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. That is why we can believe that fully as the central belief of Christianity. Let's go ahead and end this in a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have uh, revealed yourself to us through your word and that we know that it is true. We praise you, Lord, that you have sent your son to serve as a sacrifice for our sins, to bridge the gap between us and you, Lord. And we recognize that he is the only way. And we thank you, Lord, that you have revealed that truth to us. Help us to reveal that truth to the world today, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you guys for listening today. I hope this worldview study has been a blessing to you. Hopefully, you know, as we go through the Bible, you know, from this point on, we're all on the same page as far as theology goes. I wanted to do this series so that, you know, we're all on the same page. We all have the same uh, the same glasses that we're reading this through, that we're seeing this through. So I hope that you have enjoyed it and that you have benefited from it. It's been a pleasure to teach it to you. We'll start with some uh, with some new apologetics next week, next Wednesday, and uh, of course we'll be continuing our study on Romans on Monday. Again, tomorrow Matt is going to be uh, posting his new podcast, so be looking for that. And of course on Friday, Justin will be posting his podcast on the book of John. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for listening today. Have a great week. I'll see you next week.